Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 34, Right Under Our Noses, where we will be looking at chapter 69, nice, of The Name of the Wind through the lens of looking without seeing. Yes, every time we're just going to be 12 years old. And I'm okay with that. Well, you're stuck with me, so. Hey, you're not the only one who does that. (laughs) I know, I'm stuck with you. Aw, we're starting off the vomit train early this time. (laughs) Alrighty. For those of you who are new here, apologies for the vomit and a short explanation of our podcast. Each week, we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply it to our real lives. We will also take time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we continue to be completely unaffiliated with Patrick Rothfuss and his publisher, Daw Books, and, as always, we continue to be open to that changing. Second of all, our discussions are naturally going to assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as any other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you come from an alternate timeline where you've already listened to everything and read everything, and now you don't mind. Either way, spoilers ahead. Finally, a word to our community. While it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, We're not going to stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it, such as demanding that he meet deadlines and things like that. That's between him and his publisher. As we've stated before, while he might owe his publisher a book, he does not owe his readers a book. And we'll let them sort that out. So now it's time for our 45-second recap. And as always, I'll be doing it in rhyming couplets. Are you trying to say something? Look, some of us choose to make it interesting, so don't blame me. Well, our audience hasn't told us yet if they prefer your way or my way. So I'm just going to keep doing it my way until someone tells me that I'm uninteresting. That isn't you. (laughs) Well, either way, you have a timer ready? I will in a couple of seconds. Your phone is under your book. Oh, that would make a difference. It would. Alrighty. Are you ready? I am. In three, two, one, go. While running errands in Imre and looking for his love, Foth runs into Diok and they bond over a boozy trove. Diok reveals how society closes doors to such girls while accusing them of impiety for making their way in the world. His privilege revealed, Kvo thinks of Denna with more grace, and thinks better of how to wield his power in this place. Stumbling home inebriated, Quoth encounters some thugs, who with a finder calibrated have been searching for his mug. By applying clever magic, Quoth blinds his attackers, and though the circumstances are tragic, he takes steps to confuse his trackers. With time running out, Quoth finds Denna's letter, and with Elidin's clout, understands the wind better. <laughs> <laughs>
36.45 seconds. Nice. No cherries for me. Although I will note that you read that very, very fast. Congratulations for not tripping over yourself. Took a lot of effort, but I got it. Anyway, all that being said, if our audience would like to weigh in on whether or not I should attempt to do rhyming couplets of my own, or maybe even haiku, you'll have to let us know. Otherwise, you are going to get my sometimes very unprepared recap of the week. <laughs> Note to audience, this is Will speaking. I don't speak for both of us, but I speak for me when I say it would be so much better if Phoenix had to do something poetic about all of this. Well, it's up to the audience, now, isn't it? You're creative. I think it'd be great. But I'm creative in, like, a visual way. You do podcasting pretty good. Who's to say you wouldn't do poetry? Me. <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. But only if the audience asks for it. Hint, audience, ask for it. Let us go on. Yes, we're talking today about our lens of looking without seeing. Which I will point out is very similar to Sight Unseen, which happened recently. But it is, to your mind, not the same thing? Correct. The things we're looking at here are things that are right in front of Quoth's nose that he just doesn't have the wisdom to understand or actually recognize. The previous one talked about looking past certain things and not even examining sort of a blinders approach. In this case, this is seeing something right under your nose, but not having the discernment to see what it really means. So we start out... Quoth, as always, goes in Timbre, mostly hoping to run into Denna. I don't know. I am, after like my fourth or fifth or sixth or whatever read-through of this book, I wish, honestly, that he would just let Denna show up, rather than constantly looking for her. He seems to have much better luck when he's not looking for her. Precisely. I mean... <laughs> I had seven words back when they parted the first time that it sets up their entire quoth chasing after but not finding Denna well enough that I think starting off so many chapters with I went looking for Denna and did not find her. Yeah, it starts to get a little repetitive and monotonous. For those of you keeping track at home, the words that I am referring to are I'll see you where the roads meet. Meaning, she'll be the one doing the finding more often than not. And Circumstance will be the ultimate master of this. It seems like, while she may have slightly better luck at finding him, it's only a slight advantage. And really, they mostly seem to meet just by chance. I'd say that most of the time that she finds him is because he goes to the same places over and over again. He's the one who has a set routine and a set of haunts. And in this segment here, when Quoth meets up with Diok and they start reminiscing, we actually kind of get a better understanding of Denna's transient nature. The first half of this chapter seems to be learning about Denna by way of Diok. Yeah. Which just goes to show that Quoth 
needs to talk to Denna. This is also an example of Kvothe having to actually examine his privilege a bit, and it's not something that he's really given too much thought to heretofore. I mean, he thinks of himself as being on the absolute lowest rung, being pretty much broke at all times, not having a family to fall back on, you know, not having a whole lot of status. But by virtue of him being a man, he is able to fall into other means of employment just as easily as he would at the university. Plus, he's naturally gifted and has had the benefit of early education from Abenthe. That means that he's able to find a place pretty effectively in the university and with his talents could probably find his way somewhere else as well. So even as Kvoth is not super privileged and has had a difficult life, there are certainly doors that are open to him that would not be open to him if he were a woman. I think we can go into our kind of step-by-step -step at this point. I think that there's a lot of conversation and companionship that happens between Kvothe and Diok, but there's a few little things to point out. Diok is probably about 30, and he says... Nothing makes a man feel older than a young woman. And I'm going to counter that a little bit. Nothing makes people feel old as much as having adult friends who are half their age. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is accurate. As we're creeping up on 40 here, I have co-workers in their early 20s and... Oh boy, it is, it makes me feel ancient talking to them sometimes. There is a story, though, that I really want to point out from our lives. Because when I was in college, I was not twice as old as my fellow students. But I started college, my four-year college, when I was 29. But I did have a lot of friends that were late teens, early 20s. So I remember during one of your classes, there was an assignment to make a card game and you used your print design background to help your fellow students figure out how to set up all of their files so that they could print out nicely and easily. And so two of them, whom we will refer to as L and D, asked us to take them to the local staples to have those printed out. And while we were there, L and D ran into one of their other classmates who mentioned that a mutual friend of theirs was grocery shopping next door. At which point, L was like, hey, I need to do some grocery shopping too. Do you mind if I stop over while we're here? And foolishly, I said, yeah, sure, that sounds fine. So it will be important to note that the reason that this all happened is because we had a car and they did not. That context will become important. <laughs> <laughs> and D is like, oh, yeah, I need to pick up some stuff, too. Okay, cool. <laughs> and so we go over there, and D picks up, you know, a bag of chips, some water, and some other just miscellaneous sundry things. The stuff you can fit in a handbasket. While Elle went to town, like, she had a full grocery cart full of stuff. Flats of water, a lot of heavy things. She was taking full advantage of the car. Yeah, this was not a small grocery run by any means. 
This is also the point at which I must explain that the back of our station wagon also contained Dee's bike. Yes, it was heavily laden at that point already. So anyway, I'm looking at Elle's grocery cart here, which this was a good $150 grocery run meant to last, you know, a family for maybe a week and a half. It was pretty nuts. And I'm just thinking like, oh God, how are we going to fit this in the car? With the other two people. And the bike. <laughs> so we get out to the car and I'm just sitting here shaking my head all the way at this point. And then Elle looks across the parking lot and goes, oh, hey, there's a Qdoba. Can I get a burrito? And at that point, I just turned into my dad and I just said, ask Phoenix. <laughs> As though he was about to say, ask your mother. And Phoenix just looks at Elle and just goes, no. <laughs> we already got you a gigantic grocery run and we're bringing you back to your house. No. <laughs> and I just felt so ancient. I could feel the crags in my face deepening in real time. And afterwards, you know, we got home and I immediately called my dad and I'm like, Dad, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just had to apologize. I realized just then what a crappy situation it was to be constantly asked for permission to do everything for things you really don't give a shirt sure. about. <laughs> And now I knew why dad always said, go ask your mother. <laughs> <sighs> I have one more story to tell that is kind of related to this whole feeling terribly, terribly old, even if you're really not. So one of my favorite teachers who I have spoken about before wound up talking to one of my classmates and I found out somehow how old he was and how old she was. And I immediately made the distinction that the difference in age between her and me, which was, I think, nine years, was also the difference between me and him. At which point he looked at me, he's just like, quiet, you. Because I said this out loud, stream of consciousness. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like aging in real time. <laughs> Which is what I think Diok is kind of doing here. Yeah, I get that impression as well. And it's a rough feeling. Yep. Well, at this point, we understand that Diok met Dina for the first time, apparently, about two years ago or a year and a half ago. He can't really remember. And I want to point something out. Quoth met Denna half a year ago. Not that much longer. Right. So, every single time in this chapter that we get something that is, what was she like back then? I'm like, this is the dumbest conversation because it was a year before you met her. And granted, Quoth is barely old enough for high school, so... Middle school seems like back then for him. Uh... Yeah, the concept of back then is not really meaningful. No. The other thing to note is that 
Diok talks about how Denna has complexities. And I have pointed this out before, and I will continue to point this out. Kvothe refuses to see this out of Denna, or just about anyone else. Kvothe has an uncomplicated worldview at this point, and that's not uncommon in the young. <laughs> Says the old. Yeah, I know. <laughs> wow, did that make you just sound super old, like get off my lawn, super old? Yes. Ah. I know. Ah. I know, and I'm younger than you. Uh, <laughs> quiet you <laughs> we're old together don't worry <laughs> okay let's continue on before i hit you with a book that's probably a good idea the book can't take that kind of abuse i know it is kind of dilapidated <laughs> it's almost as old as your coworker. <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah like i have a coworker who was born in 98 and oh yeah it's really weird like two years before we graduated yep. ouch yep oh let's yeah. move on from this because seriously it's starting to give me a complex <laughs> yeah let's talk about denna so let's yes so denna because she is a woman has had to make her own way in the world and live mostly by her wits and her skills She's fortunate enough to have a good singing voice and that she's attractive, so many men with money find her appealing. And she's been able to drift through this life as best she can, and unfortunately, that doesn't leave her a whole lot of options if things don't go out the way she needs them to. She's oftentimes had to flee suitors who think that they're entitled to her affection because of gifts they've given her. And this shows how men, especially men of privilege, oftentimes feel entitled to her affection because they gave her a gift or they did something, quote, nice for her. And this is, of course, the peril of the nice guy. I would like to point out that Diok says, and if she trades on her charm a bit, I'll not look down on her for that. If she sells the gifts for money to live on. There is nothing wrong in it. These gifts are freely given, and they are hers to do with as she pleases. I think that that's a really good thing for him to say and a really good thing to point out in this story, especially where women are given short shrift in this society. They are given short shrift in our society. We are. They are. I sometimes identify woman-ish, sometimes don't. But I think that that is an attitude that we should all have. If you are willing to give something to somebody, it is not their obligation to keep it and cherish it. If they need to sell it so that they can eat, they need to sell it so that they can eat. And Denna does not have a whole lot that she is super sentimental about. I don't think she's been in a position for a long time where she could afford to be sentimental about most things. One thing that I appreciate here is that Diok especially is validating her agency as something that is worthwhile and important. And I think it's something that Kvothe hasn't really given too much thought to. I'd say that Kvothe avoids thinking about things too deeply. He has a very broad understanding, but not a very deep one. 
of a lot of things. I think that that's a good understanding of the first half of that chapter. We get more of an understanding, more empathy given to Denna as a person through the eyes of someone who both respects enough to take their word for it, who seems like an authority. And I wish that we would get this kind of information from Denna. It's worth noting also that in all of our encounters with Denna, it's only ever through Quoth's own eyes. And Quoth, as we've established, is not always good about asking questions, even if those questions might be deemed impertinent. One thing that's kind of telling here, and thank you for bringing this up, by the way, because it just sparked something for me. Diok is really the only teacher that he's actually taken the time to really, truly listen to. You look at how he treats many of his masters. We don't actually see him learning from Kamar or from Kilvin or from Eladin or, heck, even from Manette. We hear that he has learned things from them, but we don't actually hear a whole lot of him absorbing material from them. And he kind of gives off the impression that he just has figured out most of this stuff with little hints from them, but he's not engaging with them terribly often as a learner. And it's interesting how here he's actually listening to Diok as someone who knows a little bit more about the world. And also about Denna. And is someone who doesn't seem to resent that. And it's something where initially he does have a little bit of resentment towards Diok, but he grows to appreciate him a bit more in a way that he hasn't with other authority figures. I think it's about time that we move on to the next half of this chapter, which, not for nothing, I think it kind of feels like it should be another chapter and not the same chapter, because tonal shift... Yeah, it's a bit jarring. <laughs> so, as he's wandering home from his day-drinking exploits with Diok... <laughs> Say that ten times fast. His day-drinking exploits with Diok? Yes. <laughs> anyway. So he's wandering home, and he's a little sauced, and not really paying a whole lot of attention to the world around him. I mean... Not uncommon when you're drunk. <laughs> and he gets found by a couple of what, on first glance, appear to be muggers. You know, they look like they're just going to toss him for his money and then leave him on his way. And then he hears them say, check the finder. Which means someone has been dousing for him. His first thought is that it has to be Ambrose. I don't think it's Ambrose. Who do you think? I don't know. There's a really weird part of me that thinks it's Denna. And the reason I say that is because I'm not having another cock up like in Annalyn. And the only other person that we've heard of that's gone to Annalyn is Denna. So either it's Denna or these people might be looking for Denna. Or it was that dude who she went to Annalyn with. That they were looking for or that they... That hired them. That's possible, but I don't think Josen, I mean, eh, I think that that's kind of grasping at threads. 
And granted, that's all Quoth is doing at this point as well, so... <laughs> True. But we go through this kind of frenetic, paced, oh no, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? Which, it goes very, very fast, and there's part of a sentence that says, I was reckless with desperation. And I want to point out that this whole chunk of him going to this, 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 trying to figure out a way out of his current situation, a way to safely get away from the people who are attacking him, feels like it's contrasting with his time in the fire in the fishery, where I said that time felt like it slowed down. This feels like everything sped up. I think there's also a bit of a difference in his mindset here. When he's in the fishery, he's in a very concentrated state. He's focused on his task. He's got his mind in order. And he's also in a familiar setting. Exactly. And when that order gets disrupted in a small way, he's able to recognize it and react accordingly. In this case, his mind is already kind of a blur because he's been day drinking. No judgment. Sometimes it's pleasant. <laughs> and He's wandering the city. He's not in his home territory. He's not in an area that he's super comfortable in. And he does a little bit of beating himself up over the fact that he was able to be jumped like this. Because back in his days in Tarbian, this never would have happened to him. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Frankly, he's being, I think, a little too hard on himself because... One, these people are magically searching for him. They have the means to track him anywhere he goes, whether that's through hair or blood or what have you. So I look at that and my thought is, hold on a second. They would have found you one way or the other. Either they would have found you out here wandering the streets or they would have found you at anchors while you were in bed or they would have found you somewhere else it would have been tough for you not to run into these guys. These are professional criminals. They get hired to do this particular thing very well. Quoth exceptionalism here does not apply. It's also clear that his pursuers, while they are in possession of a magical dousing finder, are not familiar with magic as it stands. And I kind of like the reminder that we get that magic in this world is not magic as in storybook. It's industrialized magic. They understand the finder in the way that I understand a TV. I know that it works, I know how to turn it on, but I do not understand the exact nature of how it works. And I don't have to, to use it. Right, you don't need to know how to build a television to be able to watch a television. Exactly. You don't need to know how the internet works to use the internet. Oh boy, is that true. Anyway, talking about their misunderstanding of how magic works, they assume that when Quoth flash blinds them, that he's called down lightning, like Taberlin the Great, because that's the framework that they have to work within. And it scares the piss out of them. I appreciate this section of the book because... Both exceptionalism kind of falls away a bit because there are regrets. There's a regret about not grabbing the finder. There's regrets about how he handled himself. How when he was presented with very few options and very few ways 
to use those options or to get out of this situation. He kind of just... Right, it's almost comical. Like, he, he gives his great big tabble in the great interrogation voice, thankful that they're blind so they can't see him kind of flailing blindly as he runs away. <laughs> like, he gives this great big scary Batman speech almost. Who sent you? Blah, 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 blah. And then the moment one of them moves a little bit, he just scarpers off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it touched me! Ew, 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 ew. <laughs> <laughs> like, just the contrast between how he's presenting himself and then how he's actually reacting is kind of endearing. <laughs> yeah. I also think that this chapter is a little confusing near the end. He goes to Anchors, he unwedges his window, he sees that his cloak has been cut, damn it. He sees that his shirt is ruined. He thinks, oh my god, I am so, so screwed. In the middle of all of this, he goes and sticks his hair to leaves and shoves them into a courtyard that has, like, it kind of reminds me of the little grocery bag in American Beauty that floats along and is just fascinating to one of the characters who's just filming it. That whole pennant square seems that way. It seems like it was probably inspired by that scene. Quite probably. But while he's sitting there staring at the wind in the pennant square, Elodin sneaks up on him. Or was always there. We do get the sense that Elodin is someone who observes the world around him, though. I mean, he contemplated a fern for half an hour. Yeah, he's a freelance observer. And they have a little brief exchange here, and Elodin is cryptic, and Kvothe is... Thick? Yeah. <laughs> That's the right word. And then he goes back to Anchor's... And he figures he's going to have to pack up his stuff and leave town. And then he actually looks at the paper that had been blocking his window and discovers that it's actually a note from Denna that she sent him like five days ago or more. And turns out she actually understood why they weren't able to meet up. Turns out she has a much better understanding of his life than he gives her credit for. And because he just didn't actually look at the world around him, because he didn't take the time to examine his own room, for instance. Okay, that being said, I know we're going to sure. donk both a little bit for this, but I'm going to point out something. If I taped a soda can to the curtain right behind where you sleep, how long would you take to notice that? That question presumes I would notice it. Ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she honestly could have just given it to Anchor and said, hey, when you see Kvothe, can you make sure he gets this letter? There is an assumption that Kvothe is going to use his window to get into his room. Big assumption. I think this is a case of Denna being too clever by half. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's true. This is the point at which Kvothe puts his bloody shirt into a wine bottle and sends it down the Elmethy River. There's a lot of back and forth and back and forth in this chapter, and it's a little... Hmm. Maybe 
my criticism for this is it could have been edited better. Yeah, I can see that. Like, it needs to have a better point A, point B, point C, rather than, I think it's point A, point C, point F, point K, point E. And then point B at the very end. <laughs> and with that, I think it's time for us to talk about our Fernemos of the Week. I believe it's your turn. You are absolutely right. Awesome. Who do you have? This week, I chose Dioc. And there's a few reasons. While maybe I don't appreciate the language that's being used to describe Denna or to describe people in Denna's situation, words that I don't call women, he says that he wants to look at her through a rosier light, through a kinder light. He is sympathetic to her plight. He is sympathetic to what she does to live. He points out that being a seamstress or a serving girl would never suit Denna. Denna, at least in Deok's view, is almost the personification of the wind. She goes where the wind will take her. She takes advantage of the fact that people enjoy her singing. He's giving Kvoth the opportunity to see her more complexly. Because he sees her more complexly. He doesn't see her as his. He doesn't really see her as Kvothe's. He sees her as her own person. And that in so being, she does not deserve to be judged harshly. Yeah, I saw that as well. He kind of sees her the way... He sees her in an almost brotherly fashion. Well, he says specifically that she reminds me of my littlest sister more than anything. And he cares for her, but he doesn't see ownership over her. He wants her to be happy and to have a good well-being. And he also knows that she's not going to have that if he is trying to be overly protective of her. Quoth even says, you've shown her to me in a new light. Again, I would like Quoth to model himself after Diok in this situation and bloody damn well talk to Denna. Ask her questions about herself that don't necessarily have to delve into her past or her past pains. And I think there is also a lesson for us as readers. Denna is a divisive figure in the fandom. Many mostly male figures in the fandom tend to not like her a lot. And I think that, again, Deok's lesson is something that we could all do with listening to. I think that we could listen to that lesson about a lot of people. There might be some disagreements that you have with other people, and those disagreements might be things that you have to delve into and understand and approach with empathy rather than outrage in order for anything constructive to come out of them. For me, there are only a few things that that doesn't work for, and they are all to do with whether or not people deserve to be treated as people. But I guess in a lot of ways, there are a lot of people that do want the best for others, but they disagree on how to approach that making of the best. And who needs it most? I agree. 
I think you picked a good one. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. And now that we've listened to Aristotle, let's talk a little bit about Elodin. <laughs> and let's talk about an interesting fact. So this is one that I think will be particularly interesting to our fellow Kingkiller fans. While The Name of the Wind discusses the anatomy of the loot with a fair amount of detail, one of the things that is not often discussed is the way that the gut frets work on a lute. So, the lute evolved from the oud, which is a Middle Eastern fretless stringed instrument that found its way to Europe through Spain. To better play songs that used the note scales familiar to European audiences, luthiers added bands of gut around the neck, which allowed players to fret specific notes. Because each instrument is ever so slightly different, which is true whenever you have bespoke hand-built instruments, players needed to be able to move the frets around on their lutes so that they could intonate every note that they needed just right. So luthiers just had these bands of gut that you could move up and down the neck as needed. That kind of sounds a little like a rubber band. A little bit, yeah. It's a little thicker, but yes, exactly like that. So why don't modern stringed fretted instruments use adjustable gut frets today? Well, it comes down to the strings. In the medieval and renaissance periods, instrument strings were made out of gut as well, so there wasn't a need for something as durable as metal, and the flexibility that gut offered was important. However, gut strings were expensive and didn't last terribly long, so they required frequent replacement. When luthiers figured out how to make instruments with steel wire strings, they found that those strings lasted much longer and made a unique resonant sound, and you didn't need as many of them to do so. Like, so for instance, when you look at a lute, there's multiple strings on there that aren't actually picked at any given time. They're just there to resonate when you pick your main string. You could get that same sort of sound with fewer strings with metal strings. So you're specifically talking about ones that have a doubled string so instead of it being like you're supposed to hit the string and the one right 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 next to it that second one next to it is meant to be a resonant sound that just happens yep it's pretty cool <laughs> and it sounds really neat and when they started bringing in steel strings they were also louder which meant that if you were playing with a band it was able to actually accompany and not get overpowered However, gut frets wouldn't work with that because the steel wire would just cut through it. And so instead, luthiers had to start putting steel frets or metal frets into the neck. And, you know, they're inlaid, so you can't move them around. And so that's how we get today's steel stringed metal fretted guitars. So for those of you who don't understand why the fret is important, if you've ever tried to play a guitar, especially one that isn't set up very nicely, where the strings are really high off the fretboard, pressing the string, especially a metal string, down hard enough to the fretboard that it doesn't buzz is difficult if you don't have the hand strength. And knowing exactly where to put your finger, like I don't understand how people play violin because there are no frets. And I don't know how people remember where the notes go, but the idea is that when you're shortening the string by putting your finger down on it, you're changing the note that that string plays. And having those frets not only shows you where that note will sound accurately, or mostly accurately, but it also 
provides almost a pivot point once you put your finger down on the string. It specifically stops at the place that the string hits the fret. So it's really interesting knowing that the old instruments had a different system for where you could put the note. The intonation tells you along the neck if you have it in scale. So if you put your finger on the first fret of a string, it plays a specific note. And when you get down to like the 17th fret of that same string, it's supposed to play a certain note. And sometimes if it's got the wrong intonation, it won't play correctly. I know I've gone into a whole lot of very detailed, geeky, oh my God, this is my understanding of an instrument. But for people who don't know, that might help a little bit explain why it's so cool that the movable frets were a thing and that it lasted as long as it did on those instruments. The adoption of having those frets to help learn how to play, to help create that pivot point, what have you, it's pretty neat. So I take it I'm not eating any cherries as a result of this one. As much as I like to see you suffer, that was interesting. So you don't have to eat any cherries. And yeah, there's going to be a video included in the show notes that you can go to to actually watch two experts talk about this. And I think you'll really like it. It's a very interesting concept. I love listening to people just geek out about old instruments and especially things like the lute. So I'll be watching that. I thought you might. <laughs> Alrighty. And with that, I believe it is time for our seven words. I believe you're right. You have seven words from the book. So what did you find? There are two that I really like, but I know which one I'm going to ultimately pick. So I'm going to tell you the other one first. I almost picked, I've always felt she was rather lonely. And that, I think, speaks to how not a lot of people bother to actually know Denna. Including Foth. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I've hammered that one in too much, but I'm going to continue doing it. Find the why. Exactly. So the, so the seven words from the book that I have chosen this week is when Diok says, let's view her in a rosy light. It's a good one. Because I think so often the people who enjoy these books so desperately don't enjoy Denna. And I would like to stop playing into that. I want to look at her as a complex character, even as the way she is written is not terribly complex. I agree with that. So my seven words from life have to do with our podcat Sokka. As they so often do. This morning he was in fine form. Yeah, to which I said, he's awfully pleased with himself, isn't he? So tell what he was doing. So this morning I was sitting down at my computer to put together our outline for today's episode and to write down my recap and doing all my prep work. And he just kept walking all over me. And then he'd just kind of purr at me and he'd look at me and he, he was just so happy. Like his tail was up and he was just perfectly content to just keep walking up and down over me 
and over, and he just wouldn't stop. And it was the most fun thing for him. Even as I was trying to get him to stop, he just wouldn't. He kept headbutting you. Yep. He was headbutting me. He was sticking his butt in my face. He was... Oh. A different kind of headbutting. Yeah. Butt-heading. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I love that little trouble muffin, but oh, dear God. <laughs> he loves you, too. I know. I just wish he could show it in a way that weren't so obnoxious. Yeah, well, you said earlier that he was being my cat. Lila was being your cat this morning. She kept trying to lick my head. She did that to me, too. <sighs> we love our cats. <laughs> we love our cats. We must not strangle our cats. We love our cats. Alrighty, I think that that's a good note to end on. So I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you, audience, for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss Chapter 70 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of turning points. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Excuse me. We need to teach our niece to sneeze like you.